Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week's episode looks back to some stories from 2021, like the challenges that came with virtual schooling. And he said, Mama, I have absolutely no motivation. And he said, it's just too much. I just can't do that. I need a teacher to be able to ask and explain to me. He just had a terrible time. And author Robert Geip concluded his trilogy about the turbulent story of several generations of an Eastern Kentucky family. At the center of the story was Don Jewell, a spitfire whose mother struggled with addiction. That whole push-pull of wanting somebody to talk to about it and just being resentful that, you know, one, you need somebody. Two, you know, you're afraid to rely on anybody. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today's Encore episode is packed with stories of family strife and struggle, revolutionary artists fighting against stereotypes, and legendary lawbreakers, matriarchal moonshiners, and the bad man of one of Appalachia's biggest battles. Let's begin with moonshining. Mahala Mullins is bigger than life. Legend has it she once beat 30 men in a wrestling match and sold them all whiskey afterward. Mullins was born in 1824 into a poor family and died a folk hero in 1898. The cabin where she lived has even become a tourist destination in East Tennessee. But who's the woman behind the myth? Reporter Katie Myers visited the Mahala Mullins cabin and brought us this story. In stories, Mahala Mullins is larger than life. In every sense. But today, I'm in East Tennessee looking for clues about the real Mahala. And Druanna Overbay has agreed to be my tour guide. That's Blackwater Creek. Over there is Newman's Ridge. Druanna is one of Mahala's descendants and a member of the local historical society. It's a midsummer day in the Vardy Valley. It's kind of like a V, the valley. Up there in that little dip is where Aunt Mahaley's house sat. Druanna's family moved Mahaley's two-story log cabin from Newman's Ridge down to the valley and opened it to visitors. Moonshining afforded Mahaley an affluent life compared to many of her Melungeon neighbors. This is a very poor area, and there's very few ways to earn and make a living. When a newspaper man asked Mahaley why she resorted to the evil art of moonshining, she told him, it's the only way I can make a living. I think she was a very honorable lady that wanted to take care of her children. Mahala made corn liquor as well as brandy, flavored with local apples from nearby orchards. And it paid for the house we now step into. This area was called the keeping room. And the keeping room means that that's where the family had their meals. There's a kitchen, a spinning wheel, and some fancy china from England in a glass case. She loved blue flow china. And so when her children left home and her grandchildren, they would send pieces of blue flow china to her. It doesn't look at all like a den of criminal behavior. And making moonshine was totally legal, if you paid taxes on it. She refused to pay the taxes because her father Solomon Collins applied to the federal government to get some of the reparation money for the Indian removal. Mahala's family identified at least in part with the Cherokee people, who were evicted from their ancestral lands when Mahala was a child. Some of them were given money to resettle, but not all. Druanna thinks that Mahala's refusal to pay taxes was more like an act of civil disobedience. She said, they ain't getting a damn dime of my money. They owe me, and I'm not paying them. I couldn't find Solomon's application for reparations, but I did find one for Mahela's son, Reuben. Sure enough, after many years of angry back and forth with the government, his application was denied. From the keeping room, Druanna and I climb a flight of old stairs. Okay, let's go very carefully up the steps, which I hate to go up. Hope there's not a snake lying in wait, but anyway. Mahala married Johnny Mullins, a fur trader and trapper, at age 17. This attic, with its low ceiling and tiny beds, was home to their 14 children. 
So you can tell there were children that lived in Stair. Oh, by the time they were 14 or 15, they'd lived home. At least three died violently. One in a shootout, one in a brawl, and one in the Civil War. She had their graves placed right outside the window of her small, cozy bedroom, where we head next. In her later years, Mahela contracted a skin disorder that enlarged her legs, making it difficult to move around. At the end, she was confined to her bed. When she died, some say that a coffin maker came and he said, we don't have a coffin large enough for her. So they built her coffin around the bed, took her out the back, and buried her in the backyard. Obituaries were published from Canada to Mexico, more than documenting the facts of her life. They embellished her myth. The picture that came with them became famous. Mahela slouching in bed in a nightgown, looking sadly down at her feet. But as we turned to the mantle, I saw a very different image. So you see there's a picture there of Aunt Mahaley up in the middle there and two of her children. And then there's another picture of Aunt Mahaley with two or three of her children there. In these pictures, she's surrounded by people she loves in a beautiful dress. She looks more at home. The details of Mahela's life were fertile ground for myth-making. Her size, her occupation, her gender, her Melungeon ancestry, all made for great, sellable news stories. But here in Vardy, she's family history. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. Last summer marked the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, the largest armed uprising in America since the Civil War and a major event in West Virginia history. The battle came in 1921, after two decades of growing tension between miners and coal companies. But before Blair Mountain, the spark was lit with the Matewan Massacre, a shootout that's also been immortalized, and stories, song, and most notably, the 1987 John Sayles film, Matewan. You all have no right to come to this here town with all these people and drawing guns and terrorizing. The rich you have are not bound for this town. You can't get away with this. No! In these conflicts, the coal bosses hired henchmen to do their dirty work. In the mine wars, that was the Baldwin Feltz Private Detective Agency. Bob Hutton is a historian at the University of Tennessee. He's been researching Baldwin Feltz, which started in the Virginia coal fields. For folks who may not be familiar, do you mind kind of briefly recapping the, um, the role of the detectives in, on the, in those incidents? Well, sure. Um, in the, the so-called Matewan Massacre, uh, a number of agents of the, the Baldwin Feltz organization were um, uh, evicting uh, women and children from uh, miners' houses in downtown Matewan, various company townhouses. And uh, they were prevented from doing so by the local police chief and the local mayor, who commenced a gunfight that ended up um, working, let's just say, not in the interest of the, the Baldwin Feltz agents. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't on the winning side of all this. Um, the, the police chief in question was a guy named Sid Hatfield. He was later uh, put on trial for a, an, another incident that I believe involved bombing. And he was assassinated on the courthouse steps in Welsh, West Virginia, by agents of the, the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Uh, that's nearly 100 years ago, you know, coming up soon. Uh, and, of course, uh, later on in 1921, you had the Battle of Blair Mountain. And agents of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency probably did play a role in that, although their, their role in Blair Mountain is somewhat more obscure. Uh, but they they certainly are the they're the antagonists uh, in 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 the general the the, the larger narrative of the so-called mine wars. Uh, going back the the the, the well-known story going back to Paint Creek and Cabin Creek in 1912, 1913, going up to 1921, they're the primary bad guys in both cases. So I think a lot of us have an understanding of Baldwin Feltz as sort of the Appalachian version of the Pinkertons. Tell us a little bit more about this detective agency. Where was it formed? Who 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 were Baldwin and Feltz? Yeah, William Baldwin was actually named the uh, uh, 
the Pinkerton of the South at a policeman's convention in about 1905. Most important thing to remember about both William Baldwin and Tom Feltz was that they were both natives of Appalachia. Both of them were born and raised in southwestern Virginia. Both of them had gotten into the detective profession way back in the in the 1800s. Baldwin had gotten a job working for a, an older detective in Charleston, West Virginia. He later on sort of um, turned that employment into his own agency. By 1895 or so, he's the primary detective for the Norfolk and Western Railroad, and he's got Feltz working for him. And over the next few years, Feltz's uh, position in the agency grew, and eventually they became partners. And over the course of that time, they hired dozens of individuals, uh, henchmen, as spies, as patrol guards, you know, in all sorts of, you know, different kind of private security or investigation capacities. So we've talked a little bit about the Baldwin-Feltz detective agency's role in the mine wars, but that entire period is also, you know, remarkable in history just for the the sheer um, amount of upheaval, racial terror, and then establishment of Jim Crow laws in the South. What role did the Baldwin-Feltz Agency play with that particular piece of history? Um, I found that Baldwin-Feltz was sort of an enforcer of Jim Crow. So beginning in the 1880s, there's a massive African-American migration to both West Virginia and, and southwestern Virginia. And they're all being driven there by the availability of jobs in the mines and the railroads. And so it's, it's a huge demographic change. And this being the era of Jim Crow, the, the enforcement of the, the color line and the, the, the attempt to maintain white supremacy, this ultimately was sort of Baldwin Feltz's job on the railroad and the rail yards. Uh, there was a demand to make sure that these black workers stayed in line. And William Baldwin and Tom Feltz often saw that as their job. Does your research support the casting of the Baldwin-Feltz detectives as the bad guys in these narratives? Frankly, it does. Uh, there's, there's very little good that seems to, to come from their work. For instance, in the um, going back to the 1890s, there were a lot of railroad accidents. Lo and behold, the Baldwin-Feltz agency would always find some sort of individual to blame for these accidents. And very often it happened to be a, a black worker. This mythology of the black train wrecker, it becomes one of their, basically their bread and butter by about 1900. And any time there's some sort of railroad accident that the insurance companies might be you know, trying to blame on negligence or that families might want to try to sue the Norfolk and Western, they always happen to find someone, sometimes a child, that they can say, well, this person put something on the tracks and tried to, to, to wreck the train. There's so many other incidents where they would rough up uh, individuals to try to get a confession out of them, probably very often a false one. And that's to say nothing of, uh, you know, the years of their decline in the early 1930s, where they're essentially, their primary job is uh, harvesting hobos and s essentially selling them to a, a, a workhouse in, in northern North Carolina. These are not good. <laughs> these are not good people. One person around 1913 referred to them as the gunmen of capitalism, and I think that's an apt phrase. That is a, um, to me, it's a jaw-dropping story. The fact that it's homegrown. Precisely. This was the, I mean, they did work for companies that could be termed as quote-unquote invasive, but it's a, a very important thing to remember about Baldwin-Feltz is the organization was founded by Mountaineers, it was run by mountaineers, and most of the gunmen they hired who, um, who shot miners or beat up black railroad workers, these were native mountaineers. So they're, they're getting their gun thugs from the same labor pool as the people that they're torturing. And that's, that's a dynamic that really needs to be explored. Bob Hutton's journal article on the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency is called The Appalachian Gunman of Capitalism. It's in the anthology, Reconsidering Southern Labor History. He's also the author of Bloody Brother, A History of Political Violence in Eastern Kentucky. 
He's a good Twitter follow, at Here Comes Dr. Bob. In a bit, we'll learn about instrument makers who make dulcimers out of cardboard and banjos out of coffee cans. Cardboard dulcimer is good because you can build them with the kids. You can, t- you know, they're affordable, they're easy to make, and uh, easy to play. That's coming up later in the show. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Oh, shoulder up the gun with sluppy dog. Shoulder up the gun with sluppy dog. Off through the woods for a tree of groundhog. Oh, groundhog. Here comes Sally with a ten-foot pole. Here comes Sally with a ten-foot pole. Twist that whistle pig out of its hole. Oh, groundhog. Well, look at them feathers, they're going wild. Look at them feathers, they're going wild. Eat that hog meat sports cooked or boiled. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. When I was growing up, One of my best friends was raised by his grandmother, who worked in the school cafeteria, and she kept a close eye on every kid in my elementary school, a sort of grandma to us all. A lot of children in the mountains were raised by their grandparents, too, or another older relative. There are a lot of great things about grandfamilies, but it can be a tough situation, even under the best of circumstances. The opioid epidemic has forced many grandparents and even great-grandparents to become parents again to a new generation. While this segment originally aired a year ago, the problem hasn't gone away. In an episode of the Us and Them podcast, host Trey Kay spoke with West Virginia grandparents about the challenges of raising children during COVID-19. It's a Tuesday afternoon at Gigi's house, and this West Virginia grandmother is doing what she does most days, negotiating peace in her busy household. Well, honey, go in Momo's room and you can watch your show since it's different. Okay? You can go in there. You'll be fine. No, you don't hate your brother. You're just having a disagreement. Okay, now I need to finish talking, okay? I'm, I'm talking to Trey, okay? Do you remember the man that was in the car with us that time? I think we were waiting for you at the bus stop. Just an an interview about grandparents and grandkids. That's all. Before the coronavirus pandemic hit, we had a different public health emergency in this country. The opioid epidemic. It's a health crisis that affects millions of families, including Gigi's. For their privacy, we'll only use her first name. Gigi's daughter has struggled for years with opioid addiction. That's why Gigi cares for her grandkids full-time. She's not alone. Nationally, more than 2.5 million children are raised by grandparents and other extended family. In 2017, the federal government declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency. Since then, opioid deaths have increased each year, and the coronavirus has sent numbers even higher. There was nearly a 40% increase in opioid fatalities from May 2019 to May 2020. For multi-generational families, there's a new challenge, keeping older caregivers healthy, those most vulnerable to COVID-19, while giving their grandkids a home. Nonprofits like the National Center on Grand Families at Generations United say the number of grand families and kinship families is on the rise. The center supports policies and programs to help address their unique challenges. Anna Beltron is co-director. She says COVID has created new grand families. We've always known anecdotally that substance use is the primary reason that kinship families or grandfamilies come together. Uh, And it's been a number of different uh, epidemics over the years, but substance use has always been the number one. But certainly since the opioid epidemic, 
primarily perhaps because of the large number of overdose deaths, um, we have seen a lot more kinship families come together. Is this a newer catalyst to the formulation of more grand families? We did a report over the summer on COVID-19 and these families, and we highlight a family in there that came together because the parent, who was healthy young woman, was an essential worker, was a waitress at a Cracker Barrel, died because of COVID, and now her parents are raising her three little boys. So we have lots of stories like that from all over the country. I met Gigi last year. Her three grandkids are now five, eight, and 13. For several years, Gigi's had her grandkids full-time while her daughter has been in and out of rehab facilities and jail. When Gigi and I talked recently on the phone, she said COVID has created some big changes in her household. One example, she now coordinates virtual learning for her grandkids. Guys, Mama's on the phone. Uh, uh, be careful. Put that down right now. Leave brother alone. Life is as hectic as ever. In fact, Gigi has turned her family room into a classroom for the two younger kids. The little one sits at like a little kid's table, a little wooden kid's table. The second grader, I had to move him over to the main table, the dining room table. There for a little bit, they were too close. The teacher's like, I can hear another teacher. So I pulled him further apart. It's worked out good now. The virtual school day starts at 8.30. Gigi gets her grandkids fed, dressed, and on their iPads on time most days. Her oldest grandson, who's diagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, was showing some signs of depression right before the pandemic. He struggles with virtual learning. And he said, Mama, I have absolutely no motivation. And he said, it's just too much. I just can't do that. I need a teacher to be able to ask and explain to me. He just had a terrible time. And he he just, just was so frustrated. Gigi tried to support her grandson in this virtual environment the best she could. However, a few weeks later, his therapist recommended that she seek additional help. It's kind of like an outpatient. Instead of hospitalizing children and them having to miss school, you know, for psychological issues, they go there just like they're going to school or to work, and they coordinate with the Canal County Board of Education in Putnam County and surrounding, and... um So they go there, they have their classes, but they don't have them on the computer. They have, you know, papers, they do them right there. And they had a teacher who worked one-on-one with them, and he really improved significantly. Uh, and, And each day they had group conversations, counseling they would uh, sometimes just talk with the therapist. And I think once a week, they'd talk to the psychiatrist. Gigi says her grandson is really thriving in this environment, and his grades are improving as well. That's the end sound. You just learned the end, ending sound today, didn't you? You remember. Mm-hmm. Gigi sees another side effect from having her grandkids home all day. Groceries have gone up significantly, especially since big boy over here is been devouring everything in his path. He used to be, he wouldn't eat very much. I worried about him getting enough. And now he drinks like a gallon of milk a day. You know, he can eat like old pizza by himself. Gigi says big boy, as she calls her oldest grandson, has grown seven inches in the past year. Because her grandkids are in school virtually, Gigi has had to quit her job to stay at home with them. She got a few weeks unemployment, but that soon ran out. Now she gets benefits that include SNAP or or food stamps. And that money has been crucial, especially during the holidays. Since the kids have been out, honey, please be quiet. I'm almost done. Um, You know, the last three months they have given, it's that, and it's part of the pandemic thing, $600 a month, you know, above. And so I've got my $648 or whatever. So, yeah, that has helped significantly. I mean, particularly November and December with the holidays, 
And, you know, the kids here, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I could not have done Christmas without that. That was a grandmother who goes by Gigi. Because of privacy concerns for her family, she asked us not to use her full name. Her story was part of an episode on grand families for the Us and Them podcast. Us and Them is hosted by Trey Kay and is produced by West Virginia Public Broadcasting. If you're a grandparent or great-grandparent raising children, we'd like to hear from you. Write us a letter. We're at Inside Appalachia, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. Or send an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Our next story is about another multi-generational family, who were the main characters in Robert Geip's fictional Eastern Kentucky trilogy. The books combined funny, heartbreaking writing and cartoony drawings. The first book in the series, Trampoline, came out seven years ago. That novel introduced Don Jewell, a teenager growing up with a mother addicted to pain pills. Robert Geip spoke with Inside Appalachia just after Trampoline was published in 2015. Here he is talking about Dawn's experience as a teenager in a chaotic family. That whole push-pull of wanting somebody to talk to about it and just being resentful that, you know, you one, you need somebody. Two, you know, you're afraid to rely on anybody. You know, you're, you're at some level fearful of confiding in anybody. You want contradictory things in the same moment a lot of times. That character, Don Jewell, is like a lot of teenagers. She's angry and confused. She likes punk music, but insists she doesn't have a favorite band. You know, really, it's like Don doesn't care about that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about her is, it's like she's just not going to have any favorite music. If I had favorite music, somebody would take it away from me. I mean, I think that that's a big part of, you know, her defensiveness. It's beyond apathy. It's, it's a choice. Exactly. It's not apathy. It's uh, it's just like, you know, you're not going to take anything else away from me. That was Robert Geit talking with our producer Roxy Todd back in 2015 after his book Trampoline was published. A sequel followed three years later. Geip completed the trilogy last year with Pop. It's not easy to describe the books. There's love, violence, and a dash of magical realism. The story follows Nicolette, the daughter of Don Jewell, the main character from the first two books. Nicolette struggles to cope with her environment and her family while working to make something for herself. In this case, an artisanal soda pop business. Gype spoke with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas from his home in Harlan, Kentucky. Tell me a little bit about pop. Tell me how you came to write this book. The book is set in. Eastern Kentucky and East Tennessee and in Charleston, actually. Um, it concerns a, a woman who's been the protagonist of two prior books, Dawn Jewell, who grew up in Eastern Kentucky. It's set in the run-up to the 2016 election. She's become a little despairing and has kind of become a recluse and kind of lives her life on social media. And uh, that's hard on her daughter, who is trying to be young and optimistic and starts a uh, artisanal soda pop business. She, too, is trying to take place in the economy of a new Appalachia. I mean, one of the themes that kind of carries over from the earlier books is that Dawn, the mother in this book, had to try and save her mother, who was having trouble with opioids and... Um, uh, was unsuccessful in trying to get her through that, and the mother dies in one of the earlier books. And so, for the for those that have read them all, one of the questions become: Is history just going to repeat itself with the daughter in this book? With your first two books, you had one or two narrators, but this one you mm-hmm. effectively have a number of different narrators and different perspectives throughout the book. Why why did you choose to to incorporate all those different voices? My background, uh, my first um, job here in the coal fields was working with um, a documentary film center in Whitesburg, Kentucky called Apple Shop. 
you know, at the core of most of the work was um, interviewing and kind of that uh, oral history work. And then the Higher Ground Theater series that I've been a part of here in Harlan is also very interview driven. And so, you know, that was a natural um, storytelling mode for me was kind of first person narrators, almost like edited interviews. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that, suddenly that makes makes a lot more sense is, yeah, it's, it's almost like you're, you're the documentary filmmaker putting a camera in these various people's faces and setting them down and having them explain their day or, or, or an event of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there, oh, it, there's a design, man. It's all oh, figured out. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you got it. I, I just hadn't, <laughs> I, I wasn't that swift to, to, to pick it up that quickly, but yeah, that actually makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. Um, well, don't be too hard on yourself. Why did you choose to incorporate the the West Virginia water crisis into the story, the the chemical spill and and all of that as a as a background subplot into your book? You know, I'm always kind of dealing with something that's going on that's bigger than just um, you know whatever's kind of going on at the community level or with the individual families. In the actual historical event, the um, the chemical that spilled was uh, manufactured in my hometown. And so uh, I've always kind of been interested in uh, the, the various ways that people live in the different Appalachian subregions. Where I live is right on the Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, where they all meet. And I'm from Tennessee. That's just something I'm always exploring is just the difference between the subregions. I, I guess the other question I have for you is why the illustrations? I started publishing some of the chapters on a, of some friends literary blog back before I had a publishing contract and um, incorporated the illustrations then. And the publisher then thought, you know, that would, that would be worth doing with the, the printed version. So I just kept doing it. You know, I like um, graphic novels and kind of, comic comic in the sense of like comic strips derived uh stuff i think for me also i I kind of like the idea this kind of connects to the idea that you know it grew out of work in documentary the idea of the, the all of the illustrations are um the character speaking directly addressing the audience and and you know they kind of underline the idea that there is a person that's speaking rather than in most rather than writing, you know, that these are uh, kind of orally received rather than somebody sitting, writing, you know, dear diary, or these, this is the way things were that someone is talking, not writing. And the drawings help kind of reinforce that. Robert Gipes pop isn't just fun to look at, but it's got some great food writing. We asked him to read some of the book. This is chapter 34 called The Skillet Gets Good and Hot. And the narrator is Nicolette, a 17-year-old. Hubert said the skillet has to be good and hot and turned the oven on. He looked at me and said 450. Hubert took a jar of bacon grease from above the stove and said four spoons. The dull spoon rang four times against the foot-wide skillet sitting on the stove eye. Four wads of grease slid across the skillet's face. Hubert pulled the oven open, and the heat added to the kitchen smother. He set the skillet on the top rack and let the door spring shut. It was Sunday night, 11.45, 15 minutes before Halloween. Hubert stirred a mixing bowl full of pinto beans soaking in cold water with a camouflage spatula. He squeezed the wrinkles that lay round his eyes like a paper bag round a pint bottle and stared into the water. Hubert opened the back door. Cool air and wood smoke blew through the screen. Preston and Sturgis came roaring in from the movie shoot, circled the house on four-wheelers, flung mud against dogs and dog houses, flung mud against flat basketballs and five-gallon buckets of wood scraps and drywall screws. Flung mud against chicken wire pop can silos and campaign signs and blue tarps 
and gray tarps and brown tarps half sunken puddles. Mud seemed stuck to the wood snow that curled in the floodlights streaming off the corners of the house. Hubert sopped his lip and brow on his wire-haired forearm, said, too hot for Halloween. I said, I like it. And Hubert grunted, and the ring of fluorescent light in the center of the kitchen ceiling made Hubert and the batter look sickly. Hubert said, what are you going to be? And I said, a ninja. And Hubert nodded and pulled the oven door open. And he said, uh, what are Preston and Sturgis going to be? I said, they said, uh, if I'd be the mother of dragons, they'd be the dragons. Hubert said, I thought you said he's going to be a ninja. And I said, I am. Told him, mother of dragons has to dress up like a belly dancer. I ain't walking around all night with my belly button sticking out in a bunch of swishy veils. Hubert said, I don't blame you. And he stared out the window till Preston and Sturgis had gone around at least three times. And he said, when you get your skillet hot enough, you pull it out and pour your grease in the cornbread batter. And Hubert took the gray hot skillet out of the oven and did what he told me. The grease hissed in the batter and Hubert gave it a stir. And he said, sounds right. And then he dumped the batter in the frying pan and it sizzled again. And I said, and that's what makes it crispy. And Hubert said, ain't them two a little stout for dragons? And I said, I don't think them dragons will fly. And he snorted a laugh and picked the skillet back up with both hands. And I lowered the stove door and Hubert put the cornbread in the oven. He watched Preston and Sturgis some more, stood with his butt up against the sink and looked at his phone. We were surrounded by forest fires, orange necklaces through the woods on the mountain. The fires had been burning for days. Firemen were coming in from all over the place, Montana and Michigan and Arizona. Dudes dropping massive bags of water from helicopters and shoveling dirt and chopping down trees and clearing off brush to make fire breaks. Little Cobert come in the house covered in ash, eyebrows scorched. Hubert said, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm going back there to lay down and sleep. Been trying to save this damn mountain while you're out partying. Hubert said, you ain't staying here. Cobert said, you don't think so? If you don't believe it, hide and watch. And I knew where Hubert kept his kitchen pistol. And I got it out while Ho Co Hubert and Lil Cobert argued. I pointed the pistol at Lil Cobert and said, get out of here. And he said, you ain't got no idea how to use that. And Hubert took the pistol from my hand and held it at his side. And he said, get out of here, son. And Lil Cobert left. And Hubert's eyes was like marbles. He didn't say nothing. The Cobert just turned to me and said, look here. And then he took the cornbread skillet out of the oven with both hands and told me, set that plate on the counter. And I took the big plastic plate with the f faded flower pattern around the edge under where Hubert was headed with the cornbread skillet. And he quick flipped the bread out and pulled the skillet away. And the bread cracked but came out clean. And you could see the grain of the meal all brown and hanging together in the heat like it had come down to this planet from outer space like it had drove through a forest fire on a four-wheeler. Hubert run his flower pot red hand over the surface of the cornbread. And Hubert said, at least something this world does like it's supposed to. And I panted like I'd run five miles. That was Robert Kite reading from his illustrated novel, Pop. You can see illustrations from the book on our website, wvpublic.org. Now we're going to talk about playing traditional Appalachian music using instruments made out of materials you may have laying around in your basement. Now, in my house, boxes from appliances automatically get turned into forts by the kids. But did you know that you can use them to make dulcimers? That's true. As part of our Inside Appalachia Folkway series, reporter Rachel Moore spoke to two instrument makers in Western North Carolina who were carrying on the DIY instrument legacy. This is dulcimer player and maker John Cooley. Cooley has been making dulcimers for 25 years. He sold hundreds of his instruments and hosted workshops at music festivals, mostly in Western North Carolina, where he's lived for the past two decades. But there's one thing that makes his dulcimers stand out. They're made of cardboard. I just started making them one day. I was out of work. I lost my job as a counselor, and so I, so 
like I got to start doing something here. This was in the mid-90s, but Cooley's journey really began in the early 1980s. That was when he bought his first cardboard dulcimer kit at a music festival in New York. He discovered cardboard dulcimers were easy and cheap to make. He leaves some of them unpainted, so other people can customize them however they want. I had one with cardinals, one with hummingbirds, one of them had wolves on it. Cooley's cardboard of choice is thick, recycled refrigerator boxes. This makes his instruments affordable and durable. I used washing machine boxes and dryer boxes. Maytags are always good. <laughs> cardboard dulcimer is good because you can build them with the kids. You can, t you know, they're affordable, they're easy to make, and uh, easy to play. I'm going to play a little bit on this dulcimer. So you can get a feel for how this wooden dulcimer sounds. I would say a wooden dulcimer is more crispy. Cardboard's a little bit more mellow. So you get a, a difference in sound here. But don't mistake the cardboard dulcimer for a toy. It actually follows a long line of homemade or do-it-yourself Appalachian instruments. Appalachian Studies professor and folklorist Mark Freed says ingenuity has driven instrument design in Appalachia for centuries. We think of this region off as like, oh, people here holding on to these old traditions and, and the bearers of these old traditions and that kind of thing. But really, they were inventive and cutting edge. Take the Appalachian dulcimer. They were introduced to popular culture in the 1960s by folk musicians in New York City and then mass-produced soon after. But Freed says, long before that, when the dulcimer was first introduced to Western North Carolina, community members built them based on a paper pattern. And the story of that is that there was a guy who came through this area who had been right around the late 1800s or turn of the century, and he had a dulcimer and one of the local community members traced a pattern of that dulcimer and then that pattern sort of got passed around and people in this area were making lap dulcimers and this area became known for that instrument. From there, community members were able to innovate and make instruments their own. And as we see with John Cooley, instrument makers and Appalachians are still innovating to this day. Freed says the fretless mountain banjo is another example of this innovation. The mountain style banjo, you know, has the smaller head because this was the size of a stovepipe or maybe of a coffee can because people were using what was available to them. The mountain banjos are sort of a little more uh, old primitive or, or homemade looking than a, than a factory banjo. This is John Peterson, renowned mountain banjo maker in Boone, North Carolina. Peterson has been making fretless mountain banjos for over a decade now. He learned to make banjos first by watching other master banjo makers and studying the banjos he owned. But Peterson didn't set out to make mountain banjos, he just wanted to play them in local bands while he lived in Fargo, North Dakota. In Fargo, Peterson says his fretless mountain banjos and old-time music style made him a novelty. He remembers one night playing in a coffee shop. This guy came up to me after the show, and he asked me if I would build him one of those. And um, uh, I never built anything like that before, but I told him I would. So Peterson set out, studying the banjos he owned from other local builders. The end result was a plywood banjo. It did the job, and since then, he's made more than 700 banjos. But Peterson's fretless mountain banjos aren't exactly like the ones you'd find even 50 years ago. For example, he uses... Those type of cans you see like at a restaurant when they're doing like lots of like green beans or something like that, those bigger cans. Since stovepipes aren't so common anymore, Peterson says it makes sense to get the large cans from restaurants for free to use in their place. And he's happy to stick with calf and goat skins on the banjo head instead of squirrel or even groundhog skins, which were occasionally used for mountain banjos in the past. But his dedication to preserving the craft and the unique form of the mountain banjo remains. Peterson also makes other homemade instruments, like the canjo, a scaled-down version of the banjo that uses a coffee can or a tin can for the head. 
Some kanjos only have a single string, but others can have a fretboard, like a full-size banjo or a guitar. The kanjo is mostly used as a craft project for kids, but like the cardboard dulcimer, it follows in the spirit of Appalachian musical traditions. People were resourceful. If you wanted to be entertained, you entertained yourself. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Moore in Asheville, North Carolina. Rachel's story is part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways Reporting Project. You can read more on our website, wvpublic.org. We all know the stereotypes that people use to paint Appalachia as a cultural backwater. But as WEKU Sherry Lawson reports, a dedicated group of fierce women use the arts to fight back. White oaks thrash. Moonlight drifts the ceiling as if I'm underwater. Propane coils warms my bones. That's Carrie Gunner Seymour reading from her poem, I Come from a Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen. Gunner Seymour, Ohio's Poet Laureate, is the executive director and founder of the Women of Appalachia Project, a nonprofit arts organization. She got tired of submitting her poetry and fine art for publication and getting rejections with comments that didn't make sense to her. Something like trying to be too ethnic or too regionally colorful, just really weird comments that said to me that they, you know, that they were not understanding my work. Because when someone says you're too ethnic, when you're writing from your heart, you kind of feel like, whoa, what is that about, you know? The artist decided to put on her own art show with the support of the folks at Ohio University's Multicultural Center. She says the staff there agreed that people from Appalachia are frequently stereotyped and looked down on. The poet set out to prove those stereotypes wrong. People from the Appalachian area are not undergroomed, overfed, undereducated, that we are indeed the opposite, that we are talented, And as my tagline says, we believe that all women are capable, courageous, creative, and inspired. The Women of Appalachia Project has been going strong for over a decade. Its mission is to encourage and empower Appalachian female artists and our communities through presentations of spoken word and fine art. Women submit their work. It's juried, and those who are juried go on to travel throughout Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky to share their work to audiences of hundreds of people. The work is then published in an anthology called Women Speak. It's Tina Parker's third year as part of the Women of Appalachia Project. She grew up in Bristol, Virginia, and now lives in Berea, Kentucky. Three of Parker's poems are included in the anthology Women Speak, Volume 6. What I've learned is how powerful our stories are and how much rich talent there is in our region. It's been inspiring for me to, to know that there are artists out there um, in every small town, every holler, uh, telling their story and getting their work out there. The 45-year-old says she saw the opportunity to apply for the project and was immediately inspired by the notion of telling the story of Appalachia from a women's perspective. Parker says she feels like she's been misunderstood as an Appalachian woman. Growing up, I didn't know I was from Appalachia. I knew that I loved to write. I loved to read. I loved to listen to people talk. Um, As I got older, I learned that part of what I love is about listening to people talk is the cadence of their voices, the way that they sound like the place I call home. And I weave those voices and that music into my poetry. I wear a white robe. It billows on the water. 
the pastor pinches my nostrils. Her poem, Radiation Therapy, A Baptism, is autobiographical. It weaves together themes like growing up in the Southern Baptist Church and receiving a diagnosis of breast cancer. The tumor is over my heart. Sixty poets and writers are divided into two groups and typically perform six or seven times a year at venues in Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. This year, due to COVID, performances are virtual. Last year was Cecil Dixon's first time with the project. Her writing has appeared in several publications, including Dead Mule School of Southern Literature. I come from a long line of storytellers. We can't just give you a one-word answer. And the important part of, of being a writer and putting those stories on paper now is because we're a minority. The urban Kentucky resident is a retired nurse who's been writing her entire life. She'll read her short story, Rabbit, at a Women Speak Virtual event this spring. I think it's important that we show the rest of the world the talent that we have in these hills. The next spoken word performance, which will be virtual, is scheduled in May and will be hosted by Towngate Theater in Wheeling, West Virginia. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Sherry Lawson. I love the mix of stories on this week's show. Instrument makers who are determined to find a way, even if it's using the remnants of a refrigerator box. Women using poetry to undercut the wrong ideas people have about mountaineers. A legendary moonshiner who did not give a flip what the establishment thought about her. The gunman who did the dirty work of Appalachia's capitalists, even against their neighbors. And an unforgettable family who might be fictional, but who tell us an awful lot about who we are as human beings. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the Us and Them podcast, which is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the Claude Worthington Benendum Foundation. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, West Swing, John Peterson, and John Wyatt. Bill Lynch is our producer, but Roxy Todd helped produce the original episode. Jade Arthur Holtz was our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.